I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Thanks for being with me, Frank. Thank you, John. Brian's home. Left me hanging. Left me hanging. That was cold. Good Tuesday morning and welcome to Tech Check. Uh, I am John Fort with Frank Holland, back with me on the desk. Despite that, Carl and Deidre are off again. Today, one of the stories for 2022 for growth stocks, floors and ceilings, interest rates, yields, central banks providing a ceiling that the bulls can't seem to cross, while private equity buyouts and M&A staying active, providing a floor. And today, more news perhaps on the ceiling after the Bank of Japan surprised many with a shock policy shift on yields widening their target range, adding to a growing list of hawkish behavior from central banks that could mean even more pain ahead for growth stocks. Let's get to senior markets commentator Mike Santoli with more. But Mike, that's not what's happening to growth stocks today. Exactly. And look, I think that has been the general macro overlay, John, that it's caused a rethink of valuations. Yields uh, clearly have been (laughs) part of the story for uh, growth stock underperformance this year. But also, if you look back at prior cycles, it's not really the full driver. And to me, the absolute level of valuations at a time when the big growth stocks are not showing superior expected earnings growth next year is the story. So this is uh, this is the forward Price earnings multiple of the NASDAQ 100 relative to the equal weighted S&P 500. So basically the typical stock blended in uh, for the S&P 500. So this was the massive premium in late 2020 into 2021. Uh, That's because we thought these big platforms were perpetual earnings growth machines and they were going to have superior returns for many years to come. Yes, a part of that was we had low interest rates and you can discount those long-term earnings back uh, at a higher level. But that's, to me, a secondary piece of it. I don't think you have to go that far to figure out why you've had the underperformance. And this valuation gap is part of it, okay? Apple and Microsoft, for the current fiscal year, we're talking 1% to 3% earnings growth. The S&P 500 next year, it might be wrong, but right now analysts see 5.5% earnings growth. You've seen 2023 earnings forecast for the likes of NVIDIA, uh, for Meta, for Amazon, down 40 to 50 percent from where they were several months ago. Uh, even things like Netflix, uh, Alphabet, down 20 percent. So it's, to me, it's a little more of a realization that the growth stocks don't have as much growth. At the same time, you have yields going up and causing a rethink on the valuation for what you pay for each dollar of those earnings. Huh. So in a way, it's not just yields making investors rethink. It's just relatively stable and reliable stocks, some of them like Apple with dividends. The fact that those have come down makes you think, well, well, you know, for upside, don't necessarily have to look that far afield. That's kind of what it is. I mean, look, you could even look in the shorter term, right? The 10-year Treasury yield was at 4.2 in late October, October 24th. It went down to like 3.4. We're up to 3.6. So we're lower on yields. And the Nasdaq's lower since that point. So you can't really draw the real time, this is the whole story uh, type thing. And I'll just go back to prior periods when you had the one group that had such mega leadership for many years uh, that ends up, you know, the hyper concentrated at the top of a market cycle. They do tend to, to underperform for a period of time thereafter, no matter what's happening in the bond market. 
Wow. Okay. Mike Santoli, thank you. And All Frank, right. we got Tesla down 4%, Airbnb up 4%. I don't know what to make of that, but I do know we're in the last days of the year Absolutely. for people to get stuff shipped. And there's a big question, is the consumer tapped out? Maybe we're going to find out something tonight. Yeah, you know, speaking of big name companies, just named two, uh, facing pressure abroad and even here in the U.S., FedEx reports results this afternoon. A few key things to watch, the details on its 2.2 to $2.7 billion cost reduction plan. The FedEx announced after CEO Ross Romanian said a looming global recession was weighing on volume. Still waiting to kind of see what he was talking about there. $700 million of those savings from cutting flights and staff. Hours expected in this quarter. Also, we're expecting more on how e-commerce demanding is holding up into the holiday season that's seen some huge discounts across the retail landscape. Important to note, the quarter reporting today ended just a few days after what some believe was a deceivingly strong Black Friday, Amazon included. And given FedEx often trades on margin results, that could be a volatile for this afternoon, with analysts estimating the company could report its lowest operating margin since 2001 if you do not include COVID, John. Ouch. So uh, what sent chills down my spine yesterday was the Costco CEO saying on Squawk on the Street, not such an exciting Christmas, uh, particularly when it comes to apparel, when it comes to furniture, when it comes to, um, you know, stuff that isn't food. Right. Uh, people are pulling back. Uh, with FedEx reporting tonight, how much of that is going to be reflected? And then with the COVID lockdowns we've seen, we're about 33 days away from Lunar New Year. Yes. Right. Does that play both ways, both on supply and demand? Well, first, let's start off with e-commerce. Um, according to ShipMajor, a really trusted data source, FedEx is going to see 4 to maybe even 7% lower volume when it comes to holiday e-commerce for this holiday season mm. from Black Friday to Christmas. I mean, obviously, that's going to weigh on revenues. That's also going to hit another source of revenue, which are retail surcharges. The past few years, they've been able to charge their big retail customers, Walmart included, more money to ship boxes during the holiday season if it's over their, their uh, volume from earlier in the year. They basically, uh, they generally base it on February. So it doesn't look like they're, they're, that uh, FedEx is going to see those surcharges this year. UPS definitely limited surcharges. And then going forward, you mentioned Lunar New Year. That's going to be a huge story. Um, the news out of China today showed COVID may be worse than we ever suspected. The reopening may take longer than anybody ever thought. So what does that mean for Lunar New Year? Anybody's guess, but FedEx is definitely levered to China, China Air Freight, and China Freight in general. Wow. Yeah. And Singles Day was barely a blip this year. We just didn't talk much about it. So right. we'll see if this can recover. Speaking of e-commerce, Amazon shares have given up now all of their pandemic gains after a near 50 percent slump in 2022. Given a murky outlook, as we were just talking about when it comes to the consumer this holiday season, what should investors do with e-commerce names heading into the new year? Here to discuss CNBC contributor Alex Kantrowitz of the big technology newsletter. Alex, good to see you again. So, I mean, it looks pretty bleak. Does that mean it's time to buy? Well, look, the last time Amazon had a decline like this, it dropped 80% in 2000, and the people that bought did pretty well, I would say, off of that trough. Now, the question is, is it done dropping? It's down about 50% on the year. And of course, that's coming off of like very intense uh, uh, overvaluation that happened during COVID. So it's not exactly the same picture as it was back then, uh, but it seems like it's much cheaper uh, and maybe a good buy. So Alex, first off, first time I've ever seen you in a tie. You're throwing me off. I'm in a tie. John's always making fun of me. Uh, 
Number just two. Just bring the uh, holiday season uh, in. You're yeah, dressing sure. it up. I like that. Um, Everquire <laughs> with a note out with a note yesterday that the majority of Amazon's retail business is consumer discretionary, maybe even as much as 80% of it. Obviously, the, the consumer is softer than it has been in years past. How do you think that weighs on these results? Um, you know, people aren't buying their groceries necessarily from Amazon. They're buying other things they want. Well, I think you look at the amount of money that's going to go through Amazon and it sort of lets you uh, put some cold water on this idea of like a massive slowdown. Now, before the pandemic in Q4 2019, Amazon did 87 billion in revenue. This quarter, it's going to be 140 billion at the floor. Right. So it's not like the company is falling apart. It is coming about coming up against a very different investor climate and expectations that have been a little bit out of whack. So as that modulates, it might be you know, a different story for Amazon. But I, I don't really think that Amazon is going to struggle uh, in the way that, that people are painting it out. This is not a doomsday scenario for this company. Certainly not in results. I wonder about valuation. And part of the reason why I wonder is earlier this year, there seemed to be this big uh, you know, decrease in faith in Amazon with their uh, oversupply in the warehouse business and they had hired too much and they were just like, oh, has Amazon lost it? Did that cause the kind of reset where now we see the stock back down near the lows of the year? It actually might be cheap even, you know, regardless of, of how the holiday season ends up and maybe cheap is too strong a word, reasonable mm. relative to some other things. Yeah, it's a lot more reasonable now than it was when it was double the price. But I, the bear case for Amazon is completely reasonable. If you look at these companies, right, they're valued highly based off of the fact that they have high margins and they grow fast. They're obviously not growing as fast as they were during the pandemic, which is expected. But investors and Amazon itself believe that growth curve would keep going. It hasn't, right? Then you take a look at margins, which is the second half of the equation. And the company built as if that growth was going to continue. And it built like crazy investing in things like fulfillment centers without fully understanding whether those would you know, be needed. And, and now it has a moment where it has to cut costs. So you're looking at growth that isn't as high as expected and margins that aren't as you know, as much as they would be because the company needs to, to cut costs now. Uh, and and it, it can be bleak if you're, you know, if you're thinking about whether to invest in the bull case. So it's going to be a it's going to be a struggle on, on that front. The real question here, I think, is whether Andy Jassy, the CEO who comes from the Amazon Web Services side of the company, right, spent a long time there before taking over, whether he has the ability to cut costs as if you would be a retail CEO, right? It's a completely different world whether you're, when you're in the high margin money printing business than when you come and now you're in charge of the retail business, which is much, much more difficult, much more cutthroat. If he can show that he can do that, Amazon's probably going to be in good shape. If he continues to struggle and hasn't been pretty to this point, then investors are going to probably be in for more pain. You know, actually, on a great point, when it comes to their retail business, a lot of people felt like Amazon built their church for Easter, if you're familiar with that saying. They built for e-commerce just to keep growing and growing and growing. One part of the story we haven't talked about when it comes to their retail business is the rising dollar. Um, they're actually getting a break this quarter. The dollar's down about 7% in Q4, but that also helps their cloud business. How do you see that impacting potentially their cloud business, the results and things going forward with that? Yeah, the dollar is, is right now, it's coming back to earth, right? It was so strong for a long time. Um, but it's starting to modulate. And I think the foreign exchange headwinds that companies like Amazon and its fellow big tech companies aren't going to be the the doomsday scenario, the end of, of times like it thought it was going to be. I think it will still hurt, uh, but it, it could end up being less of a problem for these companies as uh, than originally anticipated. A bit broader out. Um, talk about e-commerce writ a little bit larger. Shopify is up at 36 now, was down 
uh, more like 25, 26 just back in October. So though uh, Amazon is uh, a little bit, quite a bit cheaper than it was at various times this year, Shopify bouncing back. Might that be something for investors who are invested in e-commerce writ large to be a bit more cautious about? Yeah, I think that Shopify, again, is one of those companies that ended up getting an, uh, an overdue bump due to the pandemic. Um, of course, it has the storefronts. People went bananas with those when they were stuck at home. Uh, but it doesn't have the fulfillment capabilities like a company like Amazon does. Um, that being said, it is uh, getting some of the overall lift that you would see with the full e-commerce world, right? Again, before the pandemic, e-commerce was 15% of total retail. Now it's looking like 22% this year. So you're getting everybody in e-commerce is going to get a boost that way. Uh, but but the investment thesis on Shopify to me is is still coming into focus, and I'm not fully there yet. Yeah, they're going to be building out that fulfillment capability in a more capital-constrained environment. Alex Kantrowitz, Big Technology Newsletter. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, coming up here on Tech Check, is Apple's next leg of growth fintech? Much more on that story and what it means for the other competitors in that space. Tech Check, we're just getting started. Stay with us. All right, time now for a gut check. Shares of Wells Fargo in the red after the bank agreed to a $3.7 billion settlement with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's over customer abuses tied to bank accounts, mortgages, auto loans, and overdraft fees. The bank to pay a $1.7 billion civil penalty and over $2 billion to its customers. It'll be very interesting to see if there's any impact on fintech stocks. It will, uh, especially because I'm thinking this happened back in 2016, back when Bitcoin was a baby. Right. And people I mean, we're getting the, the fines now. Right. But this is back when people were really not trusting banks and thinking crypto is the way to go. Now things have reversed a bit. There's probably a half medium bit. in there. Yeah. More uh, than a bit on the reverse. Yeah. Um, I think that really the question is, can those online banks, whether you're talking to SoFi, Asynchrony, can they offer the same services that a, a physical bank branch can offer? And of course, you can't just walk in there. During the pandemic, we couldn't walk anywhere, but now people are back out and about. Maybe you want to get that face-to-face -face with your banker. Yeah. Hey, the interest rates on those savings accounts from those challenger banks, they're pretty nice, up above 3.5% right now. All right. Apple has invested heavily in fintech, speaking of, over the past several years, beefing up its Apple wallet and pay services with more potential features on the way. And while our next guest thinks the company could move past partnerships and dominate the space, is it worth it? We've seen public fintech firms fall apart this year in spates of layoffs among private companies, including Plaid, Stripe, and Klarna. Joining us now, KPW's Sanjay Sakrani. Sanjay, um, not even looking that far afield, just looking at Apple's partner in this space, Goldman Sachs, with Marcus, it really hasn't done well. So where is the opportunity here exactly? And is Apple, in a way, using fintech as a loss leader to fuel just overall volumes and loyalty? Yeah, I mean, I think that's commonly perceived as the case, right? I think they use payments as an engagement vehicle with, for their customers. And the idea is to get people using their phones more and buying more phones in the future. So I think that's where they're monetizing today. And the question is, can they start circumventing some of the economics down the financial value chain and the payments value chain? So what is the innovation then 
in fintech right now going forward? Now that we've gotten through the 2016 Wells Fargo and, and we're having our come to Jesus moment with crypto this year, where's the real innovation versus the flashy stuff? I mean, I think for them, the real innovation would be creating very simple use cases and utility for payments. I think there's still a lot of friction inside the ecosystem. If they can provide connectivity from commerce through payments, I think that definitely could be significant value creation and obviously help businesses uh, in terms of generating revenues. Also, uh, there's a lot of intermediaries in the payments value eco chain. They can definitely streamline it in the future, and that can obviously open up a lot of different options for themselves. So Sanjay, you're hitting on a question I had for you, those intermediaries. Um, right now, uh, Apple partners with two companies. One's too small as far as market cap for us to mention. The other one, Green Dot Corp, a small cap company. Why not just acquire those companies and get some of the functions that we're seeing in reports? They want to do risk assessment, fraud analysis, credit checks, pretty basic stuff. It's not massive innovation by any means. Why not just handle all this through acquisition? I think there's two sides to that. I think on the payment side, definitely they could acquire something. They've built certain payment processes internally as well. So I think they can just use some of the technologies that they built internally from a payments and processing standpoint. From the financial side, I don't know that they want to go down that path. I mean, you know, you mentioned Green Dot. Green Dot's a bank holding company. You know, banks are heavily regulated entities, and I'm not sure Apple wants to go down that path. And then, you know, I think Apple's aspirations are not simply in the United States, it's more global. And they'd have to go out and do that across the world in theory, right? And that would be a lot of different domiciles and regulations to have to deal with. What about pay later? Isn't that kind of a risky business, especially with a softer consumer? And, um, you know, I work with some companies that are Apple suppliers. Apple's known to take a long time to pay its suppliers. Why would we want to get into business where potentially your customers take a long time to pay you? I mean, the pay later is a pay in four over, you know, a pretty short period of time, maybe a month and a half to two months. So it's not a very long duration loan. So to the extent that people do start defaulting more, they could shut that down pretty quick. But the other most important uh, topic or, or point is that it's not on their balance sheet, right? It's through their financial partners that they're utilizing for uh, for the, the credit risk. So from an Apple standpoint, it increases engagement and utility for the phone and, that's, and their products. Uh, Apple's famous for not buying the cow when they can get the milk for free. <laughs> like even though Apple can afford more milk than anybody, they're like, no, I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I think, uh, I think we're not gonna buy that cow. So th therefore, where does it leave companies like Affirm like Block now with Afterpay that argue that they have these better risk models that are going to see them through this period and yet their stocks are suffering in the market? Is this, is this a moment of opportunity uh, for investors looking at those given that Apple's not going to get into this space you project and, and therefore if their model works perhaps they have some running room? So, you know, we don't cover a firm, so I don't want to speak to a firm directly, but I would say we do cover Block. And from a Block standpoint, we think the deal for Afterpay remains a good one. Obviously, we're in a tough part of the cycle where we might have an impending recession. But as I mentioned, the credit risk is manageable here because it's fairly short duration loan. I do think buy now, pay later products are 
relevant for people down market because they don't have a lot of options in terms of credit availability. As far as mass market lenders, I do think there's a lot of options for, for getting loans for the average consumer in the United States. So I don't see a whole lot of utility there. I've been covering consumer finance for over 20 years. And, you know, we started in America dropping credit cards on people, right? So credit cards came before debit. So I think credit's a pretty mature market. Um, so I don't really see, a, you know, a significant sea change occurring from, from that angle. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll be curious to see how that pans out, especially given what Intuit said in the last earnings. Uh, Sasan Ghadarzi was with us saying uh, Credit Karma, they were seeing a lot of creditors pull back. We'll see if Buy Now, Pay Later can figure out a way to benefit. Sanjay Sakrani from KPW. Thank you for being with us. Yeah. All right, so to come here on Tech Check, three firms have called Microsoft their top pick for the new year this week, and it's only Tuesday. More on why Wall Street likes the name and whether it's worth buying here. That and much more after the break. Don't go anywhere. More Tech Check coming up. Welcome back to Tech Check, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's your CNBC News update this hour. More signs of weakness in the construction sector. Building permits sank more than 11% last month, more than triple what economists had forecast. Housing starts fell less than expected, but still dropped to a two-and-a-half-year low. General Mills is down more than 3% despite posting strong quarterly results and raising guidance. Sales at its high-margin pet business were flat with manufacturing constraints limiting the production of dog food and animal treats. 3M says it will stop producing so-called forever chemicals within three years. PFAS compounds are widely used, but they've also been linked to cancer and low birth weight. 3M says this move will lead to pre-tax charges of as much as $2.3 billion. And Kroger is the latest big retailer to limit the sale of children's pain and cold medications. It joins CVS and Walgreens Boots Alliance in limiting purchases. Flu hospitalizations have soared across the country. And, you know, John, nothing is likely to spark parents rushing to the children's section of their local drugstores, like the thought that you're going to have a sick kid and no way to make them feel better. Now you want to go get it, even if your kid's not That's sick, right. especially given RSV and all that stuff going around. Contessa, thanks. Sure. Meanwhile, Microsoft getting a lot of love from the street this week. Morgan Stanley calling the name a top pick yesterday as Oppenheimer, along with Evercore, join in today. All three firms highlighting the stock's strong margins and free cash flow, calling it a longer-term pick worth buying at these levels. Stock's price to earnings for the next 12 months, now trading around 23. That's not cheap. After starting the year at 33, definitely not cheap. Shares are down almost 30% year-to-date. Frank, as, as you and I know, being on TV, be careful when everybody loves you. So <laughs> what's, what's potentially wrong? We've got to do investors, viewers that serve. What's potentially wrong with Microsoft? Got to be something. Well, I mean, a potential slowdown in their cloud business, of course, is one threat. But that's really a growth story. The revenues are going to be there. The question is, is the growth that investors are looking for going to be there? And then if there is a slowdown, we've heard Palo Alto Network saying it takes longer for deals to close. We've heard Salesforce saying there's a shift in the business. What does that shift mean for this particular hyperscaler? Does that mean people are shifting maybe to GCP? Does that mean maybe people are shifting over to AWS? So it's a question there for Microsoft. That's the big risk there that I would see. Yeah. Because their cloud business is obviously the growth engine. There's also the bundling issue right now. 
People starting to say, well, Microsoft likes to be able to say, oh, you get into Office 365, get this as well. That worked during better times, during these times, when people are looking to push back from the table a bit. Maybe the bundling doesn't work as well. And then also, if you look at with the consumer and the gaming business and this Activision Blizzard overhang that they've got, the more that looks like that might have uh, take a bit longer to get through the regulatory pipeline, perhaps that affects the stock. Yeah, but the bowling thing's a catch-22. We Like, again, Palo Alto Network CEO said, a lot of customers are saying, hey, I just want to go to one vendor. So the question is, can Microsoft provide everything that people want in one vendor? And a big thing, obviously, think, cybersecurity. Yeah, that's you know, Microsoft. It's, I, it's, and you can, you can play your Xbox <laughs> while you get your cybersecurity services, right? Who else offers that? Well, I mean, nobody offers the Xbox, obviously. <laughs> I mean, you're asking a question that only has one answer. I mean, if you really want a one-stop shop, I mean, come on. Well, I mean, obviously Microsoft has a big suite of products, but the question is, do they really hit down and narrow in on the things that their customers want? That's one of the things that we've heard a lot of different CEOs say is that, yeah, you can sell me these new products, you can sell me this product, but are you helping me optimize the products I already have? Or are you giving me something that's more tailor-made to my needs? One thing that a lot of companies are looking at with cookies potentially going away, with Google getting rid of cookies, where's my data at? How do I organize my data? Can you help me do that as well? Yeah, Microsoft will try. Yeah, certainly. All right, moving on. A long list of initiations in the software space at Woodbush. We're talking CrowdStrike, Datadog, Okta, and MongoDB, among others, getting a very bullish outperform rating at the firm heading into the new year. And right now we have the analyst behind all those calls. He joins us right now. Uh, Taz, thank you very much for being here. We appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. I want to start off with some of the names you mentioned. A lot of them in the cybersecurity or cyber monitoring space. We're talking CrowdStrike, Datadog, and Okta. Um, you, a very bullish outperform for all of them. Does that mean demand is going up for cybersecurity in 2023? We're expecting to see a lot of cyber threats or, or cyber questions after the Russia-Ukraine war started that we haven't seen or at least haven't become public quite yet. Sure, our framework is based on two things. One is company fundamentals and demand, and then also looking at the stock, the stock drivers, with the numbers of pricing and a lot of the, uh, the the sort of slowdown that is expected next year. So the framework is not just based on the demand drivers alone. It's based on where the numbers are, what is being priced into the stocks. So given given the risk reward, given where the stocks are today, we think that these stocks are attractive from a risk reward perspective. So demand is holding up better in security than other names, but there is a little bit of slowdown given that we had strong spend in the last two years. So I would say the, the topics are based on not just demand, but also based on what is being priced into the stocks today and what the risk reward looks like. So it's not just a demand-driven call. It's based on what these stocks are reflecting today and what the risk reward looks like. So, so we it. think demand is so good. It is a little bit, there's a little bit of lull that probably is, is reasonable to be expected, but at the same time, the stocks are pricing in uh, a lot of that uh, already in the prices. So got it, not just demand driven, but one of the two other macro factors we have to talk about when we talk about all these cloud names is the dollar and also rates. We've seen rates jump up a little bit this week, but however, the dollar's fallen pretty strongly this quarter. How does that play a factor in your call? Sure, so we look at the valuations across the board and we you know, we try to factor in how much of the interest rates are being priced into the stocks right now. So if you look at the 10 year yield chart, uh, you know, rates are almost 4% up. And the last time rates were this high was back in 07 and 08. And we looked at what the valuations were on a growth adjusted basis back in 07 and 08 and compared that to where the prices are today, the valuations are today. We think most of the stocks are pricing in a 4% rate uh, today. So I think a lot of the stocks in our coverage are pricing in a 4% uh, interest rate. The risk to these stocks comes from the numbers. I think there are some names that still have high expectations and numbers need to come down. So that's where we think that the downside risk could come from. Taz, let's talk 
technology and moats and advantages for a moment. When I look at and talk to the likes of CrowdStrike and Zscaler, they talk about the power in having a platform that's extensible where they can let customers try before they buy, retain them, and then upgrade them into new services uh, as needed. But then you've also got some younger firms out there, not yet public, like Arctic Wolf, that will argue um, it's gotten too complicated managing your own cybersecurity. So they've got a concierge service where their employees will tailor make the, the cyber solution for you. Of those things, what do you think is the more important play heading into 23 and beyond that's going to spark the, the greatest growth? Sure, so I think it's a bit of both because there are companies that already have a lot of IT investments and IT staff. So large enterprise companies can manage their IT and their cybersecurity themselves. So those companies will continue to buy the best of breed software. But then there are smaller companies that can't afford to have their own IT departments, can't afford to invest in their own cybersecurity staff. They'll move towards the MSP or the managed offerings where you don't have the in-house expertise to do that yourself and you keep buying, you'll buy these uh, products from a managed provider who can manage uh, your IT and your cybersecurity for you. So I think it's it's a bit of both. Large enterprise companies will, will tend to buy more best of breed while smaller companies that don't have their own IT expertise will gravitate towards uh, a managed service kind of offering. So I think there's room for both. So Taz, I want to bring you back to the demand question. Um, obviously a lot of questions about demand. Um, a few weeks ago, John, you had uh, Dave Itticharia from MongoDB on here. Um, generally a strong report, but it had two different metrics that a lot of people look at. Billings and deferred revenue. There's also AAR out there. So what are the metrics you're looking at that signal, signal to you hey, they have a pipeline of demand, their customers are happy, and their customers are continuing to pay. So we'll look at, it depends on the model. There are models that are seed-based. For those models, we'll look at revenues and billings and RPO and bookings. And there are models consumption-based. You mentioned MongoDB. So MongoDB has a, has a business that is consumption-driven. So companies can optimize their consumption on a quarterly basis or a monthly basis, and that will impact the revenues. But for those companies, you would have, have to look at billings and bookings and RPO, which will give you a sense of, how much people are committing to forward spend. So uh, revenues are important, but we look at bookings and, and billings and RPO for, uh, to get a sense of the forward uh, commitment and what, the, what people are buying today to spend uh, in the future. So Taz, we got to let you go, but just really quick, are you buying the story that we're hearing from so many CEOs and executives that the deals are just taking longer to close? That's why some of these numbers are soft or off. We've heard that from our checks also. We've heard that from our anecdotes with you know checking with CIOs and CISOs and, and channel partners that Deals are there in the pipeline. It's taking longer to close these deals. These takes are these deals need more approvals now than they were taking in the past. So there's a little bit of a lull uh, in that approval cycle. So uh, I think that's that's true. Uh, demand hasn't gone away completely, but there's obviously a digestion phase happening after two years of strong spend. There's a little bit of belt tightening happening, given what we're all hearing about the macro and about the recession next year. So okay. uh, deals haven't gone away, but. Fair to say that there's a little bit of uh, slowdown in the approval process. All right, we have to leave it there. Taz Kujology of Wedbush, we appreciate the insight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And now signs Elon Musk might finally be throwing in the towel on leading Twitter. Sources telling CNBC this morning the new Twitter owner is officially searching for a new CEO, despite initially tweeting on Sunday, quote, there is no successor. Of course, that person will have to report to Elon Musk. We'll continue to watch that story. Tech Check is back in two. It's like succession. All right, welcome back to Tech Check. Time now for a gut check on EVs. Let's start with Rivian. Cantor Fitzgerald initiating coverage this morning with an overweight rating price target of 30 bucks. 
bullish on the company's truck and SUV lineup and their vehicle partnership with Amazon. And then there's Lucid, announcing they've closed a $1.5 billion raise, the majority of that cash coming from an affiliate of their largest investor, the Saudi Public Investment Fund. Let's take a look at the stock right now, up almost 3% on that news. Tech Check, back right after this. Welcome back. Meta officially pushing back the closing date for its planned purchase of VR app developer within Unlimited as the company continues to face off with the FTC over antitrust concerns. We're just an hour from the conclusion of the evidentiary hearing in San Jose. Our Steve Kovac joins us with more. And I guess at the root of this whole issue to me, can you have monopoly power, Steve, in a market that doesn't yet exist? That's the whole question here. It's the FTC's case is maybe one day that we're all gonna be wearing computers on our faces and doing fitness exercises in the metaverse. That's clearly not the case today, but that's the case the FTC is trying to make right now against Meta's acquisition of this company. They make a relatively popular app. This, it's called Supernatural, and you know I guess they've seen some good use cases with it. But it also speaks to Meta's overall vision towards the metaverse. They're putting this out there, and they have no idea what to do with it. They're waiting and looking at the data to see how people use it to inform acquisitions and content like this. But yesterday, Andrew Bosworth, the CTO of Meta, was in court testifying in this case basically saying we're bad at making content, so we need to acquire the content in order to make, uh, be able to compete in this metaverse thing. If you're spending more than $10 billion on something, can you afford to testify in court that right. you're bad at it? I mean, first, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry, Frank, you, you go ahead. I, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, <laughs> I just know when I get ahead of steam about these metaverse rants, but, but this is perhaps part of the question, is the FTC serious about its legal case here or is it playing chicken with these companies? We've seen some evidence that Lena Khan is thinking, boy, when we put up a fight, some of these companies just back off. The chilling what they plan to Exactly. Yeah. What they plan to do. And so we count that as a win. Doesn't seem like Zuckerberg is backing off, whether it's on spending billions on these things right. or fighting the FTC and other regulators and his right to do it. And this one kind of seems like a slam dunk for them, right? Because we said this market doesn't even exist. It's hard to even say it exists because it's so tiny and the use cases are so narrow. How many players are there, John? There's Meta. They have two headsets. Apple, maybe next year. And then there's Sony, which is mostly focused on gaming. Just plug it right into the PlayStation. So the market barely exists. Maybe one day it does exist. Maybe 20, 15, you know, 15, 20 years from now. But right now it doesn't. So that's the argument they have to make. Well, Frank, you got one of these at home. You know, I do have one at home. And I never use it. I do too, yeah. We were just talking about it. I mean, you get on there one time. It's like, oh, man, I'm at a concert. And then you put it down because you can't really play games with other people that well. Um, the experience is fun, but it's not immersive. It's just you kind of see what you're seeing. So I think my real question to you is, what is Mark Zuckerberg going to say today that's going <laughs> to make sense to the FTC and also to all of his investors to say, hey, you're losing tens of billions of dollars? Right, exactly. And he has to really make the case, again, he has to sell both, he has to straddle both things, right? He has to sell his vision for the metaverse and saying this is going to be a thing. This is why we need the company. And at the same time, he has to kind of make it sound like they're not very good at it. <laughs> and we, we need to acquire this company in order to compete before, you know, Apple swoops in or Sony swoops in. And they did mention some of those companies yesterday saying, hey, the there might not be a lot of competition now, but it's coming. Mm -hmm. All right. So I, 
and Apple, meanwhile, is making fun of the metaverse. So who exactly. knows if what they're doing is going to be directly competitive or not. They might be bluffing. And Everybody that was another thing bluffing. that Bosworth brought up yesterday. He said, we had to buy this company because we were hearing rumblings that Apple might buy it and make it exclusive to whatever Apple is working on in this headset space, too. So he's making, the, again, comp competition here. So they really believe it's going to be Apple versus Meta in this. Speaking of, I guess Mark Zuckerberg there arriving right now. Here's the video at that hearing. Uh, you know. He can't get Sheryl Sandberg to come to these things anymore. No. He's got to go himself. Yes. Sheryl, you know. She's, she's relaxing right now. She got, off, she got out at the right time. That was one of those tops, perhaps, in, in social stocks that you can count on. Between changing the name to Meta and Sheryl saying, I've had enough, that would have been a good time. To, you know, I, I remember that very walkway in San Jose, uh, some of the Apple Samsung. Yeah. Right? Theranos, I think, was there too, right? Yeah. yeah. A lot of action has happened there. We'll see uh, what kind of argument Mark Zuckerberg makes. Long time from the hoodie days, he is in. I mean, he's wearing a tie. This is not good for me, Frank. Um, if Zuckerberg is wearing a tie, a turtleneck would have been better. But no, this is uh, an important moment when it comes to regulations. We were just talking about, Steve, because the question is, can, can you do a sort of back to the future regulatory approach where because this might be big in the future, uh, we're going to regulate it now. Regulators did get a lot of heat for allowing Facebook to buy Instagram and WhatsApp for for a billion dollars. Well, I mean, WhatsApp still isn't much of a business, but right. Instagram could have been huge. And the argument was, well, if we had done more of a look into the future at what this could have been, we shouldn't have allowed Facebook to buy. Yeah, and, and they're having buyer's remorse, or not buyer's remorse, allowing the buyer's regulators regulator's remorse. remorse. And that's been uh, Lena Khan's kind of thesis ever since she got this job. And that's, by the way, that's why Biden appointed people like her to these positions, because maybe they're losing these cases. Uh, when the uh, FTC sued Microsoft a couple weeks ago, we're talking about the Biden administration's track record at killing these deals. Not very good, with the exception of the Simon & Schuster deal. So is it just to put a chilling effect on it or is she really trying to make a point? I mean, the bigger case, this is such a small deal, the bigger case is gonna be Activision and Microsoft in that lawsuit. But is this the type of market where you need to be killing potential right, transactions right. where somebody with billions upon billions of dollars wants to spend on some uh, entrepreneur's idea? VCs aren't spending on it. And then, the question, and then the question becomes, how do you prove that? Yeah. How do you prove that one day this is going to be a dominant way we use computers? Yeah. Well, in this market, maybe you don't want to give Silicon Valley a cold shower in quite that way. Right. Steve, thanks. Thanks. Meanwhile, looking for the best chip stock to own in the new year? Well, Cowan says bet on applied materials, the equipment maker, while Needham likes NVIDIA, the chip maker. Find out why with both those analysts next. Stay with us. We're back in two. Ten minutes from noon, let's get a check on the broader markets. The major indices, the Dow is up slightly, about 49, 50 points. S&P about exactly flat, and the NASDAQ down just fractionately. Tech Check is back in a moment. Welcome back. Let's turn now to chips. Needham calling NVIDIA the top pick for 2023, while Cowan goes with Applied Materials for their best semi-cap idea in the year ahead. They've both got analysts, and they're both with us this morning. Joining us now to discuss those calls, Cowan's Chris Sankar and Needham's Raj Gill. Welcome to both of you. Let's start. Uh, where are we going to start? With, with you, Chris. Um, tell me about the, the trade-off as you see it between equipment 
versus a best of breed chip player and which way investors should bet more? Sure. Hey, John, thanks for having me. Um, since I cover equipment, you know, like you mentioned, our focus has been more on uh, applied materials. First and foremost, I would say when I look at my front end equipment coverage, the large cap names, whether it's applied materials, LAM Research, ASML, KLA, these are all high quality companies. And these are all high quality names that are going to be extremely valuable over the next several years, especially as semiconductors become much more important. Now, when you look into next year, clearly the industry is going through a digestion, but the stocks are already discounting that. So when you look to the other side of it, especially whether you're in a recession camp or modest recession camp, investors do tend to gravitate towards companies that have a deep moat. Semiconductor equipment companies do have that. And within that, our, our preference is AMAT. But like I mentioned earlier, many of these names that I highlighted earlier are high quality names, but into next year, we like AMAT the most. So Rajvinder, let me turn over to you talking about NVIDIA. You mentioned that's your pick based on the strong balance sheet, but I was looking at the last earnings and I'd like to know what you're really keying in on here. Uh, when I look at margin, that was a miss. When I look at operating income, that was a miss. And even cash from operations, a huge miss. So what's so strong in this balance sheet that should give investors encouragement when of course there's weakness in data centers, there's weakness in gaming? Well, the, the, the balance sheet is just, just one aspect of, 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 the, of NVIDIA. I think the, the, the bigger issue is that NVIDIA experienced the kind of trifecta of hardships this year. Um, there was a cryptocurrency collapse. There was an impact on the gaming revenue related to, to slowdown in China. They obviously were impacted by the export controls um, uh, in China that prevented them from selling high-end GPUs. So there was a combination of, of, of events that, that um, had a negative impact um, on their fundamentals and also on, on the stock price. You know, so as we go into calendar 23, a lot of those headwinds are, are going to turn into, into tailwinds. And with respect to gaming specifically, uh, the gaming segment um, has been uh, clearing out. They've been clearing out a lot of the X's inventory that's been built into the distribution channel this entire year. So NVIDIA has been undershipping uh, demand in order to clear out the excess inventory. We're going to reach a bottom um, in Q1, and then we are going to start to see a rebuild of gaming, um, you know, upgrading to their latest right. uh, architecture. Okay, the data so... There's an upgrade cycle going on with their, their latest architecture as well. Okay. So a lot of the headwinds are now turning to tailwinds. So, so Chris, I... I can see where you're coming from, at least in the long-term argument, that equipment is going to be important because there's all this demand. Whatever's happening in China, eventually that equipment's got to go somewhere because the world needs chips. But uh, applied materials was as low as 75. Now it's up near 100. And we're getting into this oversupply situation. Is it possible that in the beginning of 23, we end up with a situation where the stock goes back down there uh, if the economy heads into somewhat of a significant recession? Sure, I think I think it's a very valid question, and that's one of the things that's been on top of mind of the investors, right? And John, to your point, it was 75 in mid-October. Now it's around 104. I would argue the other way around and say if it is actually 165 in January, and it's corrected quite a lot in anticipation of a down cycle next year. The bigger question to your point is, you know, could we retest the lows? I do think it is possible, especially if you are going into a deep recession. But the market is already discounting a weakness in uh, spending next year. So if you look past into 2024, we see some of a relative growth in 2024 from 2023. I think that's going to be positive for the stock. But largely, China weakness, 
um, uh, a cyclical downturn is actually in the stock. Maybe a deep recession is not. Well, Chris, really quick, I want to push back on you. You said China weakness is factored into your call, and Rajvindra, maybe it's in yours. But with the news that we have today, with COVID possibly being even worse than we ever suspected, hard to imagine you already factored that in. How much more of a downside risk is in just China, COVID continuing, and those lockdowns continuing into the new year? Yeah, fair enough. I, I would say from an equipment standpoint, that's more like a second or third order effect because the equipment companies sell to the Chinese fab manufacturers, and that weakness is discounted. Eventually, to your point... You know, if this COVID shutdown is going to impact end demand in China, it'll, it'll probably filter through over a, over a time, but it's not going to impact uh, semi-equipment companies right away. It might impact more the end chip supplier or the end product seller into the Chinese market. But from an equipment standpoint, it's more the export controls that kind of went into effect in October. Um, I mean, U.S. kind of like put, you know, SMIC, a few other uh, Chinese companies on export control or NTT list to prevent them from getting access to the latest, greatest technologies through right. U.S. Okay. Well, we got to leave it there. Krish, Raj, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Frank, uh, quite a morning. A lot of yeah. market action. We'll see where it ends appearance. up. Mark Zuckerberg yep. uh, appearing in court. MongoDB and Adobe up 3% as we head toward the half. Tesla down 5 Good software, enterprise. Bad cars, perhaps? Bit of a turnaround in the market. Thanks for being with me, Frank. NASDAQ in the positive. (laughs) (laughs) The halftime report starts now. (laughs) You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.